0: Hi, I'm Kara Swisher. I'm Peter Kafka. And thanks for listening to Recode Replay. This is one of the sessions from our 2017 Code Conference. We're going to let you hear it in just a second for free. You're welcome. But before we do that, we want to plug another conference. Okay, fine, if you insist. I must, I must. You must Um, insist. If you like this event, there's a very good chance you're going to like Code Media 2018. February 12th and 13th in Huntington Beach, California. 2018. I can't believe it's next year. Next year. Absolutely. Save the date. Peter and I will both be there, which means it's going to be a fantastic event. I've been to all of them and I have learned things. I would actually pay for them, Peter. We may charge you this year. Uh, One more time. That's Code Media 2018. It's like this event, but it's in 2018. February 12th and 13th. Go to events.recode.net for all the deets, as the kids say. As the kids say. Thanks, Peter. See ya. Ladies and gentlemen, Lisa Dickey. Hello, everyone. So I'm going to be talking about the topic du jour, which is Russia. Uh, But I want to go in a little bit different direction than the way that everything everything else has been going. Uh, So because I'm going to be talking about Russia, I am inevitably going to be talking about this guy. But I want to start, actually, with these guys. Uh, Do you remember after the Soviet Union fell in 1991, peace was breaking out all over, you know, communism appeared to be done, the Cold War was over, you know, and the U.S. and Russia were suddenly friends again after decades of being enemies. So what happened in between this and the 20 years between this and where we are now that's brought it all the way back around? That is what we have to understand to understand where we are today and what we do moving forward. So I want to take you back to 1995. This is me in 1995. I was living and working in St. Petersburg, and I met this guy named Gary Matoso, who was a photojournalist. And he had this really radical idea that he wanted to go all the way across Russia over a period of three months and just photograph ordinary Russian people and find out how they were living. And so uh, because this is a tech crowd, I want to uh, share with you his other even more radical idea. This was the prototype digital camera that Gary had. This was made by Kodak. These were not really yet on the market. And his big idea was that he was going to go across Russia and do a real time web travelogue in 1995. So I liked Gary a lot, but clearly he was insane. Uh, but somehow we actually managed to do this. This was the website we made, the Russian Chronicles, very cutting edge for its time. Uh, and I just wanted to share, because I know Mark Andreessen was here. If you just look, it's uh, best viewed in Netscape 1.1n or higher, or later, yes. So anyway, we actually were able to do this. We started in Vladivostok, which is the very far southeastern tip of Russia. And over a period of three months, we made our way 5,700 miles and seven time zones back to St. Petersburg. And I just want to tell you about some of the people that we met on this trip. Uh, This is the lighthouse just south of Vladivostok. Uh, It was really the edge of the earth, the middle of nowhere in 1995. It's about 40 miles from South Korea, very close to China. Vasily was the guy who was the lighthouse caretaker. This is his wife, uh, Valya. Both of them were beyond shocked to have a couple of of Americans come, knock on the door, and say, hey, do you mind if we interview you and take pictures with this giant contraption? Uh, But they did eventually sort of allow us to come in and take pictures, and this is Valia calling in the weather information to the Meteorological Center in Vladivostok. Uh, We continued on to Birabijan, which was set up in the late 1920s by Joseph Stalin as a quote-unquote Jewish homeland. Um, In 1995, this was not a happy place to be. Uh, The peak uh, number of Jewish people who lived in the Jewish Autonomous Region, as it uh, was called, was 42,000 or so, and by the time Gary and I got there in 1995, there were probably about 1,500. There was no functioning synagogue, there was no rabbi, there was rampant unemployment, all the factories had closed, everybody who lives in Biribijan appeared to be trying to get out of Biribijan, and that was the situation there. We continued on and met this farmer who lived in a very tiny village outside Ulan Ude, the first person to privatize a farm among the people in his area. We continued then to Lake Baikal, one of the great wonders of the world. This is Tatiana Sitnikova. She is a world-class freshwater scientist who was making between $25 and $50 a month. The scientists at Lake Baikal were having to sell postcards and aquarium fish on the side to make ends meet. Imagine if the Woods Hole oceanogra- uh, uh, oceanographers were you know, driving Uber on the side so they could do uh, all of their research. Uh, continuing onward, this is uh, 11-year-old Anya and 16-year-old Masha. Their family was one of the rare families that we met that were actually doing really well. Their father was an entrepreneur. They were doing quite well. They had credit cards. They'd traveled to the West. Um, not the girls, but their parents. Um, but at the same time, they were still nostalgic for the Soviet era, even four years after it had collapsed. So why is that? Because in 1995, the ruble had collapsed, the economy was wrecked, people had lost their life savings. Russians were fearful and uncertain about their future. The infrastructure and public spaces all over Russia were crumbling in terrible condition. Boris Yeltsin was becoming increasingly unstable and Russians looked to America essentially with envy at that point. 10 years later, I decided it would be really cool to do this once in a lifetime trip again. I wanted to go across the country again, find all the same people, and essentially say, how are you doing now? At that point, Boris Yeltsin was long gone. Uh, Vladimir Putin had been in office for five years, and I was really curious as to how people's lives had changed. So I went with a photographer named David Hillegas, dropped back in on the lighthouse keeper and his wife. There they are. They were much more relaxed this time around. Everything's great. Come in. Take whatever pictures you want. Uh, The lighthouse at the edge of the earth had turned into beach blanket bingo. Uh, It was now a public beach. Vladivostok itself had been greatly spruced up. There was a lot of tourism there, uh, which was a new thing. I went to Virabijan expecting to find a ghost town. Instead, I found that they had a brand new synagogue. They had a rabbi who had arrived from Israel. There were more Jews living there in 2005 than there had been in 1995, and I was absolutely dumbfounded by that. Um, Continuing on, the farmer in 2005 was pretty much the only person of everybody we talked to who was not doing as well in 2005 as he had been in 1995. And that has to do with the difficulties of farming and he had lost some tax subsidies that he had been working with. Continuing on at Lake Baikal, totally different situation. Uh, Now that the Russian economy was doing better, the government was funding their their research again. They didn't have to look abroad. They didn't have to sell postcards on the side. They were doing quite well. I saw my first Apple computers in Russia with the scientists at Lake Baikal at their Limnological Institute. And remember the little girls? Not so little anymore. Here are Masha and Anya, now in their 20s, fluent in English. They came and picked me up in a Land Rover. Citizens of the world, And uh, not so nostalgic for the Soviet Union anymore. So the takeaways from the 2005 trip, the price of oil had tripled since 1995. The economy was greatly boosted. And all of that money was flowing out into Russia. The infrastructure was improving. There were new bridges and roads. People had credit cards. They'd gone to Turkey on vacation. They could afford to buy imported goods. Putin was, for lack of a better term, making Russia great again. Uh, U.S.-Russia relations were cooler, but not nearly as cold as they would get. Uh, so let's get to that. Ten more years goes down, down the road. It's 2015, and I decide, wouldn't it be cool to go back and do this whole trip again? And at this point, now Putin's been around for 15 years. Uh, he's, the Russians have annexed Crimea, and uh, the uh, West has responded with sanctions, and the ruble has once again collapsed between January of 2014 And September of 2015, when I arrived in Russia, the ruble lost half of its value, which was really catastrophic for a lot of Russians. So I had no idea what I was going to find, how I was going to be received by people. Uh, And I was traveling alone this time. I decided to go without a photographer. So I arrived in Vladivostok and once again, knock on the door. And here is the lighthouse keeper and his wife posing with a photo from 2005. And look behind the lighthouse now. A beautiful new suspension bridge, one of two that had been built uh, and... Every person in Vladivostok, every local that I talked to about this said the same thing. They'd been promising us these bridges for years. Putin got it done. Uh, So uh, there were other problems that people had. I talked to a couple that were there that they had taken out a loan, a dollar-based loan, to buy a new car. When the ruble collapsed, they now owed twice as much for the car and couldn't afford it. And so there were a lot of those kinds of stories. But money was still continuing to flow in from the government to spruce up places like Vladivostok. And Birabijan, as you can see, this is the Freud Center, right next to it is the synagogue. There's this new, uh, this new statue. This is not to say, by the way, that everybody, all the Jewish people in Russia are treated wonderfully well. I'm just saying that there is a place called Biribijan, that there is government support trying to maintain uh, some sort of Jewish cultural life there. Continuing onward, here's the farmer and his wife posing with photos from the first two trips. The farmer had lost his farm, and he had worked as a bus driver for a couple of months, and he was not getting paid. And this is a very common thing that happened in the 90s. I had not seen it happen at all since then, and I was really surprised by it. And the thing that's interesting about this was I said to him, are you upset with the government? Are you angry with Putin that you're not getting your checks? And he said, oh, my God, no, of course not. I'm angry at America. He was upset with us. And I heard this over and over again from people. They never blamed Putin or the Russian government for the fact that their economy was failing. They blamed us because of the sanctions and because of the falling price of oil, which we obviously had done just to screw them. Uh, So continuing onward to Lake Baikal, uh, Tatiana Sitnikova, remember from the black and white photo, there she is in her sunglasses. The Institute continues to do well. The gentleman here in his Russia vest, these are very popular now ever since the Sochi Olympics. Nationalism and nationalist, nationalist feeling in Russia is quite high right now. Uh, Remember the sisters? Here they are. Truly citizens of the world have traveled all over the place. Uh, You know, vacation in Europe, you know, again, speak English, can read anything they want on the internet. And I had the most contentious conversation with Masha, the one in the brown coat that I had with anybody in Russia, when she informed me over a lunch at the Wild Boudoir Cafe, there is such a place, uh, that the Russian press is more free than the American press, that the Russian people are more free than the American people and that uh, 9-11 was an inside job. So clearly a mixed bag on this trip going across Russia, but there are a few clear takeaways. So people have asked me since I've been back, so do Russians really love Putin as much as the Poles say, or are they cooked, basically? And the short answer is, in my experience, all the people I talk to, almost all the people, not all, but yes, they really love Putin. This is a calendar you can buy. There he is cuddling a cat and riding a horse in a studly way and being your favorite uncle there um and so you know but in my experience yes outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg where there's a little bit more uh people are a little bit more uh less uh they're a little more sophisticated about these things let's say uh but yes he's very very popular two reasons one is as we've seen people are doing much better under Putin than they did under Yeltsin and number two We know that he controls the television media, and this is a a large way that people get information about what's going on. Which leads us to our second point. Do Russians really hate America? This is a T-shirt that you can buy pretty much anywhere in Russia. It says, which means this is our response to the U.S. sanctions, and that is Vladimir Putin kicking Barack Obama in the face. Uh, And so the short answer is they hate the American government. They feel like America has screwed them left and right. Uh, they don't hate the American people. The Big Bang Theory is a huge hit there. A lot of people were very disappointed that I don't watch the Big Bang Theory because they wanted to have a discussion about it. Uh, But the bigger problem that people have is not that they hate America. They think that America doesn't respect them. And I want to tell you this story because it is really emblematic for me. I went when I was in Novosibirsk this time with Valeri, the guy that I was writing about. We decided to go to the movies one night and we went to see The Martian. Have you guys seen The Martian? So Matt Damon is stranded on Mars. We need another country's help to get a rocket back up there to rescue him. So who do we ask? Not Russia, China. And my friend Valeri came out of the movie theater, completely apolitical guy, going bonkers. He was enraged that, why would you ever ask China? Everybody knows Russia has the best space program. Clearly your government told the filmmakers to make this this way just to screw us just to stick it to us so this is if there was and bears in the streets actually the title of my book comes from this same thing where russians kept saying to me over and over you americans all think we just have bears wandering in the streets and they would feel very disrespected they feel like we don't respect them and we don't pay attention to them of course we're paying attention to them a lot now which goes back around another reason why they love vladimir putin so where do we go from here? Is there anything good to take out of this? Uh, I included this photograph of Misha, uh, who lives in Chita, which is in Siberia. He's a 25-year-old entrepreneur, and he was very typical of a lot of the young people that I met. He's studying English. He cares about his health. He doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink. He told me most of his friends don't smoke and drink. Misha not only doesn't remember the Soviet Union, he wasn't even born during the Soviet era. And there is an entire generation of Russian young people who are very connected uh, they, they're online, they're on social media, they're very interested in what's going on in the world. And, it's, and I think we need to turn to the young and focus on the young when we're thinking about where do we go from here. This is me with a bunch of Russian schoolgirls in, in Vladivostok at the beginning of my third trip. And the second takeaway, I would say, is something that uh, I, I gave this talk a couple of weeks ago. And I, a guy came up to me afterwards and he said... He said, you know, I I got invited to do a panel, to lead a panel in St. Petersburg, but I'm not sure I should really go and do it, given everything that's happening. And I said to him, it's absolutely the opposite. You should go. Now is the time to go. Now is the time to engage. There's nothing that we can do right now about Trump's White House and Putin's Kremlin, and whatever back channels are going on between them. There's not very much we can do about that, but the one thing we can do, especially in this room where people have power and they have connections and they have the ability to do these things, is to to connect with the people who are there. We have more in common with the actual people of Russia than we think that we do. And And it's very important to remember that there are 144 million people in Russia who are not named Vladimir Putin. And the more that we can connect with these people and and bring that circle back around, the quicker we can get out of these kinds of quagmires, or at least that's the kind of thing that we can do to help move it to that point. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay.